0: You have your Bible here this morning, Revelation chapter 14. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through Revelation, Return of the King. We will be starting in verse 6 as you find your place today. The title of our message this morning, Angels of the Apocalypse. I was reading a book this week by David Jeremiah on angels and In it, he includes this story. Kevin and Cindy Cathcart were driving their SUV down Interstate 40, crossing the rugged deserts of New Mexico. The Cathcarts had been enjoying a weekend of romance and fun in celebration of their 10th wedding anniversary. As Kevin drove, Cindy napped and their golden retriever sat in the back seat. Suddenly... Kevin saw a huge tire attached to an axle flying through the air directly at them. The next thing he remembered was sitting behind the wheel with busted glass and blood all over his face. You see, a tire from an eastbound 18-wheeler had shot across the median and hit the calf carts directly, causing a terrible collision. Amazingly, Kevin only had minor cuts on his body. Cindy sustained a knee injury, and the dog was unscathed. Among the first responders, though, the word miracle was used to describe their death-defying escape. The Cathcarts remembered especially one good Samaritan who was on the scene to help them out of the vehicle before the paramedics arrived. But later, as they looked for this man, they couldn't find him. It was as if he had disappeared into thin air. And when they talked about other witnesses who were there at the scene, they could not remember a car model or a description of the man. They just know that he was there and then gone. The Cathcarts talked it over, and they believed that God had sent an angel to pull them from the wreckage of their vehicle. A few days later, when the Cathcart's returned home, they discovered a package had been delivered on their doorstep. The card attached to it explained that it was from their friends and it was an anniversary gift. And when Cindy opened the box, she was amazed to find inside a small figurine of an angel. I could ask you that question here this morning. Do you believe in angels? We know the Cathcarts certainly do, and so do many others. According to a recent USA Today poll, 55% of Americans, when asked, said that they feel that they had been protected from harm by a guardian angel. Now, if you're a Bible believer today, it's impossible to ignore the ministry of God's heavenly hosts. In fact, we read over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 and verse 14, Angels are described as ministering spirits sent to serve those whom will inherit eternal life. From cover to cover of the Bible, we see the activity of angels. Early on in the book of Genesis, it was angels that helped Lot's family escape Sodom before God destroyed the city. In the days of Moses, we read of that Passover angel in Exodus chapter 12 who came by the houses and passed over those who had spread the blood of the lamb over their posts. In 1st Kings 19 we read that Elijah was fed by an angel in his time of great need. When you come to the gospels you see angels flurrying about the business of God as they announced the birth of Christ and ministered to him throughout his time here on the earth and then announced the resurrection of the Son of God. Then when you get to the book of Acts and you go to chapter 12, we see a jailbreak happen in which an angel flings open the doors of a prison and helps the shackles fall off of Peter's arms and legs and he walks out free. Now when you come to the book of Revelation, we notice that angels will play a significant role in the end times. We've already seen it in Revelation 8 and 9 we read of seven angels there blowing seven trumpets, and with each blast of the trumpet came another judgment of God upon the earth. When we read of chapter 12, we saw the veil pulled back and an invisible war being fought there between Michael and his angels versus the demon hordes and the fallen angels of Satan." Now we come to Revelation 14, and we're going to be introduced here to another group of angels with a very specific job description. They have a special role to play in the final act of God's divine drama. And in this passage, what we see here are what I have called angels of the apocalypse. If you're counting, you'll notice that they appear in Revelation 14, verses 6, 8, 9, 15, 17 and verse 18. Each angel that appears in this passage comes with a very important announcement to the inhabitants of the earth. They are going to tell the people of earth some very urgent news as the time draws near at the last half of the tribulation period for the return of Christ. And in many ways, we're going to notice that these angels act as God's advance warning system To tell the people on the earth during this time to brace themselves because the worst of God's judgment is yet to come. Now, as we open our passage here in verses 6 and 7, we see this first angel come across the skies of the earth. And he has the declaration of the gospel with him. The declaration of the gospel. Notice in verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, you will notice that at this time during the tribulation, God has already sent out many witnesses Across the earth. In Revelation 11, we read of two witnesses whom God brings to the earth. They're able to perform signs and wonders, turning the waters into blood, calling down fire from heaven. They declare the gospel in Revelation 11, and many believe. We also read in chapter 7 about the 144,000 Jewish evangelists selected, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes who are called to crisscross the globe with the gospel. Telling people to repent and trust in Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, now we see that God sends an angel through the airways to declare the gospel one final time before the worst judgment comes. Now you'll remember that in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said that before the end comes, that the whole world will hear the gospel. He said that in Matthew 24 and verse 14, and the preaching of this angel is going to reach any who have not yet heard that great message of salvation. Notice that the Bible calls it an eternal Gospel from beginning to end, from eternity to eternity, God has declared his redemption story to man that man is fallen in sin, but Jesus Christ is a great and willing Savior, and whosoever will come to him shall have that eternal life. Though this preaching of this angel will be heard all around. The world. Could you imagine that scene as people step out on their doorstep or stop in the middle of a busy street and look up and there is an angel as the heavens open up there declaring to them, fear God and repent for the time of judgment is now at hand? God is always extending grace and mercy, isn't He? And that is what we see in this passage. It's a reminder that even in the midst of His judgment, God is also a God of mercy and grace. Certainly no one during this age, nor anyone during the tribulation age will be able to say they didn't have a chance to hear the gospel and respond to it. And the fact that God sends an angel, dispatches him across the earth to declare one more time His goodness and His mercy to mankind is a testament to the fact that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all may come unto repentance. What a gracious God we serve. So we see number one, the declaration of the gospel. That's the message of the first angel. Now we see the second angel emerge here in verse 8. And this angel comes to talk about the downfall of Babylon. The downfall of Babylon. Look at what verse 8 says. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So this first angel comes with good news that there's still time for sinners to repent. But the second angel comes with very bad news, and that is that Babylon is doomed. Now this is actually a preliminary announcement of the overthrow of the city of Babylon and all of the false religious systems that it had created. In fact, we'll read more about this in coming days. In Revelation 17 and 18, it outlines the destruction of Babylon. And in that passage, we learn that it takes only one day for God to bring this great world empire down to crumbs. Now, a little note about Babylon from the early chapters of Genesis. Babylon was always a city that symbolized man's rebellion against God. That city was ruled by a dictator, much like the Antichrist of the end times. His name in Genesis 10 is revealed as Nimrod. And Babylon became known as the object of God's judgment. You remember what happened in Genesis 11. They tried to assemble themselves together and build, united under one language, a tower defying humanity. But God came down and He confused their language in Genesis 11. And Babylon is known as the springhead of all idolatry and false religion because in God's judgment there in Genesis 11, when he confuses the languages of the Babylonians, they disperse across the face of the earth and with them they take all the pagan practices and the false deities that began there. Listen to what John MacArthur says about this scene. He said, quote, As humanity was once united in idolatrous false religion at ancient Babel, so will it again be united in the end times under the power of the final Babylon. History has thus come full circle. The world will be intoxicated, deceived, and seduced by the Babylonian false religion headed by the Antichrist. The angelic announcement previews the coming destruction of the Antichrist's economic, political, and religious empire. Now, let me just take a minute and get on a rabbit trail. Just as Babylon was the moral polluter of its time, friend, the United States of America is the moral polluter of the world at this time. I'm not saying that we are the Babylon of Revelation 17 and 18, but I'm saying that we aren't that far off in our behavior and our belief system today. Look at the message that we send out to the world. You know that we export more than any other country around this globe Pornography, it comes pouring out of this nation. The God of materialism and money is worshipped here in this nation. Look at, uh, turn on the news and notice this whole week as, and, uh, the whole month really of June 2019 has been all about pride month, celebrating perversity and putting gay pride on the banner. Drugs have inundated our nation and we export drugs all over to our cities, and we are rife with evil and idolatry. You know what the Bible says? Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And America will suffer the same fate of Babylon if we do not <coughs> repent and come back to the living God and say, God, we have given ourselves over to idols. We need to repent. Lord, forgive us, break our hearts. You see, God is America's only hope. But God is also America's greatest threat. Not terrorism. Not socialism. But the judgment of God. The downfall of Babylon. The declaration of the gospel. And then number three, we see another angel emerge who heralds the decision of sinners. The decision of sinners... And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Not exactly a popular passage to preach today, is it? But this third angel comes with a sobering ultimatum to the citizens of earth. He says, you have a choice to make. You have a decision. Accept the mark of the beast and face the wrath of Christ. Or, accept Christ and face the wrath of Antichrist or the beast. And essentially what this is, is it's a warning for people alive on the earth during this time to be cautious about who they pledge their allegiance to. You see, if they bow to Antichrist, they may gain in the short term, but they will lose in eternity. On the other hand, if they bow to Christ, they may suffer in the short term, but they will win in eternity. And friend, that's true now. That's the decision that every human being has to make. Will I serve myself? Will I serve sin? Will I serve Satan now? Or will I serve Christ now and gain eternity in the end? Jesus said it, didn't He? That it would be a terrible thing for a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul. Listen to what David Jeremiah wrote about this decision of sinners. Quote, without the mark of the beast, those who live during the tribulation will not be able to buy or sell so that they can survive. The pressure to take the beast mark will be tremendous when it comes down to a matter of life and death. Think of your children. How long would you be able to last seeing them go without food or medicine? And if someone told you, hey, all you need to do is take the mark of the beast and you can get all the things you need, what would you do? The angel's message, he said, is to remind people of the eternal consequences of selling one's soul for a loaf of bread. Now, we read the message of this angel, and truth be told, this angel would not be invited to preach in many churches today. Because, as you notice, the second half of his message is warning the people about the reality of hell. Hell. Do you know today in our so-called tolerant culture that we live in, if you simply teach what the Bible says about hell, you're either laughed to scorn as some kind of religious nut or you are branded as some kind of bigot, unloving person. When I was a kid, I remember going to my grandma's and getting the Sunday paper and it was always fun to look in the newspaper at the comic strips. Kids today don't even have a clue what a newspaper is. These pieces of paper, they came every day in your mail. You opened up, they had the news. <laughs> well, in the back on the Sunday newspaper, they would always have cartoons. And I remember one that always caught my eye. It was called The Far Side, and it was written and illustrated by a man named Gary Larson. And he always liked to poke fun at religion. And I remember one day opening up that comic strip and noticing that in the back there, he had printed the picture that you see there of A scene from hell. And there you see the demons of hell whipping people as they are lined up. There are flames licking in the background. And you may not be able to read the caption, but as you notice there, people are lined up in hell to get coffee. And one man says to another, Oh man, the coffee's cold. They thought of everything down here in hell. Now do you see what the world does to the preaching and the warnings about hell? The world makes a big joke about the judgment of God. Friend, you can laugh your way into hell, but you can't laugh your way out. Hasn't the enemy done a good job of deceiving people into believing that hell is not a real place? Somebody once said the greatest trick that the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And I would add to that, the second greatest trick is the devil convincing the world that hell isn't a place to be feared. That it's anything but a place of punishment. But you notice here in the preaching of this angel, his brief message overturns two popular myths about hell. You read it there very quickly. Let's refresh our mind. It says there in verse 10, He will drink of the wine of God's wrath, pulled out full strength into the cup of his anger. Watch this. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You know, one of the first big myths that you often hear about hell is that hell is going to be a place of enjoyment and partying. You saw on the screen just a few seconds ago that image of the rock and roll group from years ago, ACDC. They have a song that's even played today. I've heard it at football games, Highway to Hell. And in that song, they sing about how that when they get to hell, it's going to be good times and fun and games with their buddies. What a terrible, what a tragic message. According to this angel, though, if you read it, we read that hell is a place of conscious torment and suffering. In fact, Jesus referred to the place of hell in Matthew 13. He said it's a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. When I read that as a kid, I always thought that that was a trip to the dentist. (laughs) But it's a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't even think that we have the capacity to imagine that level of suffering. Part of that suffering will be physical. Part of that suffering will be psychological. And another aspect of that will be spiritual as they are in a place away from God. Remember Jesus told that passage in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus? And the rich man died and ended up going to Hades. And the Bible says there in that passage that he had full recollection of his earthly life. And all of a sudden, now that he was in Hades, he wanted to become an evangelist. And he said, why can't I go and tell my family members to stay away from this place? All of a sudden, in hell, he had a passion for souls, whereas on earth he did not. That means that he had regret over his life. I believe part of the punishment of hell is that those who are there will have full and complete recollection of every time they heard the gospel, every time the Spirit of God tugged at their heartstrings, every time a witness came by to them and tried to share the good news, and they hardened their heart and rejected Jesus Christ. You know the second great myth of hell that this angel dispels is the notion that hell is temporary. In fact, look at the important phrase mentioned there in verse 11. It says this, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Hell lasts as long as heaven. And friend, heaven is for eternity. You know, a lot of times people will bring the charge against God. They say, God is unjust. I can't believe in a God who would punish people in hell for all of eternity. Well, friend, what those folks need to realize is that there is no amount of human suffering that could adequately pay for sin. That's why Jesus Christ came and died on our behalf because He was the God-man and His blood, His life shed in our place paid in full the debt that we owed. You see, some denominations like the Catholics, they teach the ungodly, unbiblical Tradition called purgatory where if you're not good enough to go to heaven And you're not bad enough to go to hell You go to this place where you can work off all of your evil and your sin Well friend, if we could work off our own salvation Then we wouldn't need Jesus Christ You see, another charge that is brought against God As I said, is that God is unjust for punishing people to an eternity of hell But you know what? Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan theologian years ago, he said this. He said, quote, The heinousness of any crime must be gauged according to the worth and dignity of the person it is committed against. And since sin is against an infinite God, then it is worthy of a corresponding punishment. God is holy. God is just. God is eternal. But you know what? Hell is God's great recognition of the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. You see, there's two choices. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, All right then, you have it your way. But the good news of the gospel is that nobody has to go to hell. God has put several barriers in between every sinner And the torment of hell. He's put the cross of Jesus Christ. He's put the Word of God. He sent the Spirit of God into this world. And if a sinner wants to go to hell, they have to neglect, ignore, and reject all three of those witnesses. And so hell is a place of one's own choosing. God desires that no one go there. So we see the decision of sinners, the downfall of Babylon, and the declaration of the gospel. But then there's another scene that transpires. In verses 12 and 13, we notice the death of the saints. This next angel that comes has a message of hope for those who are alive on the earth during the tribulation and have trusted in Jesus. Notice verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, for they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And so we see that right here is one of the seven Beatitudes of the book of Revelation. It's the second one, in fact, mentioned so far. There's one in verse 3, Blessed is the one who hears and heeds the prophecy. There's one here in chapter 14. More to come, chapter 16, one in Revelation 19, 20, 22, and 24. But this is a strange beatitude as you read it. Blessed are the dead and those who die in the Lord. You see, many believers will come to Christ during this time of tribulation. In fact, we've already read because of the witnesses of the 144,000 and the two witnesses that the greatest revival that the world has ever seen is going to take place during the tribulation period. And many people are going to come to know Jesus during that time. But they will be hard-pressed. They will be persecuted. They will suffer like no other Christians have throughout history. In fact, this angel talks about the trade-off that they will have to make. There will be a trade-off that will pay major dividends. You see, for all of their suffering, they will receive rest and reward. He said, Blessed are the dead and those who die in the Lord, for they may rest from their labors, for their deeds may follow them. You see, death for them will mean the end of their struggle for survival as well as their entrance into the heavenly reward, and it will never end, and it will be worth it after all. It's worth it after all right now. No matter what God asks you to suffer, no matter what God asks you to go through, friend, it's just enough to know Jesus. And to know that you'll see Him face to face. That's this angel's message to those tribulation believers. Hey, stay with Jesus. Stay faithful. In fact, as I read this, I thought about one man who was the epitome of this. His name was Joseph Son. He was a preacher that lived in the oppressive regime of communism, the country of Romania under the rule of a despot named Nicolae Ceausescu. Joseph Son was a pastor. He was arrested for preaching the gospel. And when the communists arrested him, they told him, they said, if you don't stop preaching Jesus, we will kill you. And here's how he responded. He said, sirs, my supreme weapon is dying, and your supreme weapon is killing But if you kill me, I go to heaven and I win. And, you don't understand this, but I win here on earth too. And the communists were totally confused and they said, well, sir, what do you mean by this? He said, you know that my sermons have been recorded and they're spread all over the country. He said, if you kill me, all of those sermons that have been recorded on cassette tapes will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know that I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I wonder what it is about this man's message that was so good that he was willing to die for it. And they'll pick it up and listen to it. So, sirs, he said, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. Go ahead and kill me. I'll have victory over here. And I'll have victory on the other side. The communists didn't know what to do with Brother Joseph's son. And that's the same Flavor of this beatitude here in this passage that when death comes for the believer no matter if it's tribulation time or right now that it's victory in more ways than one so we see number five another angel appears and we see the division of humanity the division of humanity verse 14 then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like the son of man With a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. The hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, the imagery here changes to that of ancient agriculture. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13 that will throw a lot of light here on the meaning of this passage here. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable about a farmer who goes out to his field to bring in a harvest. As he goes out there to examine his field, he noticed that among the wheat there are tares. That's good grain, but they were also accompanied by tares. It looked like wheat from a distance, but under close closer inspection, They were weeds, they were inedible, they were useless. So the farmer, rather than individually plucking up all the tares, the farmer waited for the final harvest, and he gathered in both the wheat and the tares, and he separated them. The wheat went into the barn, and the tares go into the furnace. And Jesus explained the imagery of that parable. The farmer is Christ, the field is the world, the wheat are the saved, the tares are the sinners, and the harvest is the end time of the tribulation. And just as a farmer would separate the crop, the good from the bad, so too in the tribulation and at the final judgment, Christ is going to separate humanity into the saved and into the lost. And that's the imagery that we have here of a farmer going out to reap his fields to cut down the wheat and to separate what's true and what is false. You see, friend, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's saved people and there's lost people. There's not gay people and straight people. There's not uh, black people and white people. There's not Catholics and Baptists. Really, when you divide humanity down the line, there's only two kinds that God sees, saved people and lost people. Those that are twice born are those that are twice dead. Those that are born twice will only die once, and those who are born only once will die twice. And so we see here the division of humanity and then we move on very quickly number 6 and we wrap up with the destruction of Armageddon the destruction of Armageddon verse 17 then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle and another angel came from the altar the angel who has authority over the fire and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle put in your sickle gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Again, this last angel continues with the theme of harvest, but this time he's not harvesting Wheat, he's harvesting the grapes of wrath. Now, this angel's message anticipates the climactic battle of all history, which is known as Armageddon, in which Christ Jesus will return to the earth, the church with him, and he will devastate and defeat all of the enemies, all of the armies of the world, the Antichrist and the false prophet as well. Now, this thematic idiom of a grape harvest has been seen before in our Bibles. The minor prophet Joel speaks about this in Joel chapter 3. And I want you to see how Joel's prophecy is connected to Revelation 14. Look at what Joel said. Assemble and come, you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's another name for the valley of Megiddo. For there I will sit to judge all surrounding nations. Here it is, the imagery. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come go down, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. My, oh my friend, what an image that is. You see, in ancient days when they gathered in the grapes, they brought them in and they placed them in a huge vat. And then they would commence to raise up their grapes Tunics, and they would get in that big vat of grapes, and with bare feet, they would begin to crush those grapes under their feet. And as those grapes crushed, The juice spat upward and went all over the place. What an image the Bible is showing of Jesus Christ. That's what He's going to do to the enemies of the earth, the Antichrist and the false prophet. When He comes back, when He returns, at the Valley of Decision, at Armageddon, He's going to tread underfoot all those who oppose Him. And just like a tiny little grape squishes out juice, the blood of men will be shed on that day. In fact, the Bible tells us that this blood that will be shed will be as high as a horse's bridle and spread out across over 1,600 stadia. We don't use those measurements anymore, but if you were to transfer those numbers, what it means is that the blood would flow at a depth of four feet and cover an area of 184 miles. Now, you can take that literally if you want, but I think what the safer interpretation here is that it's hyperbole. In other words, Armageddon is not going to be a battle. It's not going to be a competition between two equal sides. It's going to be a slaughter. Jesus Christ is just going to say one word. He's just going to whisper under His breath and all those who have opposed Him will be completely decimated. Now think of the terrible irony of this moment. Sinful mankind who has rejected the precious blood of Jesus, now at the day of judgment, they will have their own blood shed at a place called Armageddon. Well, these are weighty issues. And I understand that speaking of hell and speaking of judgment, that's not popular in today's churches. But friend, it's in the Word of God. And if it's in the Word of God, it's good enough for me. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the creator of Sherlock Holmes, but he also wrote a lot of nonfiction works as well. He wrote a historical piece about British troops who went and fought in South Africa during something called the Boer War. The story that he told is very interesting. He told of a small British detachment of troops who became overrun by an oncoming enemy force. They had to fall back because the fire was so intense. Their wounded laid in a perilous position. They were facing certain death. Then one soldier realized that if they could find a Red Cross flag, then they would be given peace and they would be given safety because the Red Cross was universally recognized for its humanitarianism. Well, as the soldiers looked around in the chaos and in the bloodshed of that battle, there was no flag to be found. So one man tore off his white undershirt. And the soldiers, having nothing else to write with, went over to one of their dead. They dipped their fingers in the blood of that fallen soldier. And with their fingers, they made an improvised red cross on that t-shirt. And they hoisted it up. And when the opposing army saw the flag, they were allowed to transport their dead. There was a ceasefire. Friend, I'm here today to tell you that, praise God, we have a cross under which we can gather and we can claim the blood of Jesus Christ, God's only Son. Those who are under the cross shall receive mercy and grace and safety. You see, God painted an old rugged cross with the blood of His only Son so that we might have forgiveness and mercy. So that instead of judgment, we get grace. And so the blood of Jesus is what has satisfied the wrath of a holy God so that He might offer us safety and peace. And I wonder if there's anybody that needs to respond to that simple message today. That Come to the cross and there you'll find forgiveness. Come to the cross and you'll find help in a time of need. Come to the cross and you will find salvation.